We're in a series now on the Ten Commandments or the law of God for the Christian life. And today um, we are, let me give you kind of a little outline for those of you who might be visiting or have only visited us recently. Let me give you a little bit of background on where we are in this series. Uh, We looked at, um, we asked the question, what is the duty that God requires of man, of mankind from Adam on? And that is his revealed will. And we saw that his revealed will is, is also his, the law of God, and that the law of God is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments, in the Ten Words, which is the moral law. It's written on our hearts. We suppress it because of sin. And we saw that it was written on two tables, the first four dealing with our relationship with God, the, the next six, numbers five through ten, dealing with our responsibility to our neighbor, which corresponds to what Jesus answered when he was asked, which is the greatest of all the commandments, remember, by the religious leaders. And he said the first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself. Those represent those two tables of the Ten Commandments. And so we looked at the first three Ten Commandments over the first couple of weeks of this series. We looked at the object of worship, that's God and God alone. We looked at the means of worship, that it is Idols would be forbidden, any sort of creation of our own making, our own fashioning is not an acceptable, uh, it's not acceptable before God. We looked at the manner of worship, that's our taking of oaths and vows, not taking the Lord's name in vain. And then last week we were introduced to the, ta- to the time or to the day of God's worship, which is the Lord's day. We saw in Exodus chapter 20, For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the Sabbath day, or the seventh day. And so in Exodus 20, we were called as his creatures to honor the creator, to imitate him as he's modeled for us. Now, he doesn't get tired, he doesn't slumber, he does not sleep, but he modeled for us that day of rest. And in Exodus 20, it was to call back to God's work of creation. And in Deuteronomy 5, the Commandment is repeated again, except in this time, the basis for it is not in creation. The basis for the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 5 is his redemption or his deliverance of them out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Notice this, this time it's not based on creation, it's based on redemption. And the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so last week we looked at the Sabbath principle that still applies for believers today, but the day has changed. It's changed from the seventh day or the Sabbath day or what we call Saturday to the Lord's day or the first day as summarized in our catechism questions from last week. And I'll invite you to read these with me. What is required in the fourth commandment? We say The fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as hath pointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. And then in question 64, it says, What day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? And notice the change here. Let's say these together. Before the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be a 
the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. And so we looked at all of this last week. I just want to kind of give you some background here and where we have come from thus far, because this has raised a lot of questions for some people, especially Christians in the New Covenant age. Like questions like, well, wait, isn't the Sabbath, isn't that a part of the Old Testament that's been done away with? Or, or hasn't the Sabbath been fulfilled in Christ? And so therefore the Sabbath doesn't really apply to, to people, no longer applies to people. That, that was one of the questions that we have received. And they usually cite from, uh, whether they mean to or not, they usually cite from a couple of passages. One is the passage that we just read. So Josh just read for us, Colossians uh, chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, let no one pass any judgment on you regarding a Sabbath, right? So maybe you've heard people say this sort of thing, is that, well, then the Sabbath doesn't apply for us in the New Testament age because Christ has fulfilled all of those things. Or similarly, Romans chapter 14, verse 5, where it reads, one person esteems one day, as better than another, while another esteem, esteems all days alike. And they understand this one day is to be referring to, well, isn't that referring to the Lord's Day or the Christian Sabbath? And therefore, you know, this is not a binding thing on us in the New, in the new Covenant age. And basically, isn't, isn't Paul saying here that all days of the week are essentially the same? So those, those questions I want to look at today, it's basically, here's the one large question. The one large question is, should Christians observe the Sabbath? Kind of a little bit of a trick question here and there. But should Christians observe the Sabbath? And I've broken this down actually into two parts. Okay, part one would be, more specifically, should Christians observe the Jewish Sabbath day as under the Mosaic Covenant as part of the ceremonial law. That would be the first one. And then the second one we'll ask is, then should Christians observe a Sabbath keeping under the new covenant? So let's look at the first one. Let's look at the first one first. Should Christians observe the Jewish Sabbath day as under the Mosaic co the covenant? And I think if you've been around here, uh, long enough, you would probably understand what the answer to that would be. It was, well, well, that's a no, of course, right? Because we're in the new covenant age and Christ has fulfilled all these things. But what about that verse that we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadow. These are just a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So I want to look at what Paul is referencing here in Sabbath. And what he's doing here, and I want you to notice kind of a trio of terms there. There's the, the passage, and I want you to kind of maybe underline or mentally make a note here of festival, new moon, and Sabbath. Notice those three terms. Festival, you could kind of throw food and drink in there because it may be associated with the festival. It could be food and drink would be. Uh, other ceremonial observances in Judaism. But I want you to notice those festival, new moon, and Sabbath. And Paul, being the Pharisee of Pharisees, being a, a, a tremendous scholar of the Old Testament, 
Almost everything, as you read through and you study, especially Paul's words, it, you, you find over and over again, almost every line is, is just saturated with the Old Testament scriptures. He's always alluding to or drawing from some, some uh, terms and phrases, and it's just has so shaped his mind and his thinking. God's word has so shaped his mind and his thinking, he just kind of uses them all the time. Here's an example of where he's using this collection of terms to really represent something. These become uh, kind of a, a trio of code words for, um, for something very specific. And I want to show you where this trio of terms occurs in the Old Testament. We're going to go through these really fast. I just want you to see them. I don't need to explain the background really, but uh, just to, for you to see them. Here, First Chronicles chapter 23, and here it's, in the context here, it's just explaining the duties of priests. And they were to stand every morning, thanking and praising God, and likewise at evening, and then verse 31, and whenever burnt offerings were offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, notice it's plural, by the way, Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days, according to the number required of them regularly before the Lord. Okay, in the context here, it's saying this is a summary phrase for all of the ceremonial observances in Judaism. Sabbaths, new moon, feast days. Kind of like just a summary phrase for that. Here, here again, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, I am about to build a house for my name of the Lord my God and dedicate it to him for the burning of incense and sweet spices before him and for the regular arrangement of the showbread and for the burnt offerings morning and evening on the Sabbaths, plural, and the new moons and the appointed feasts of our Lord our God as ordained forever for Israel. Okay, this is talking about the building of the, the temple and what's it for? Well, it's for doing all the ceremonial observances of Judaism. Similarly, 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 13. Notice the trio of terms occurs there again. Notice that Sabbaths again is plural. The duty each day required, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbaths, the new moon, and the three annual feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost, and the Feast of uh, Booths. Second Chronicles 31.3. Notice again. The burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the appointed feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 33. The regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the appointed feasts, the holy things. I know many of you are like, Aaron, you can make this sermon a whole lot shorter. Just tell us the one passage and tell us that there's eight of them just like it. <laughs> Let me give you just, but I've done the work, so let's just go ahead. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, bring me no more vain offerings. This is the Lord saying to about Israel that the judgment is coming upon them because of their false worship. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're just going about and doing all of the, the rituals, but with doing it with no obedience in their heart and no manifestation of that holiness that those represent in their lives. And the, Isaiah says with judgment, bring no more vain offerings in sense of an uh, incense is an ab uh, abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me and I am wary of bearing them. Notice again that trio of terms. The Lord here is saying, 
when every time you all of Israel are performing all of your ceremonial feasts, it's all an abomination to me. Even though I commanded them to you, it's an abomination to, uh, to me because you are doing them with a sinful heart. Ezekiel chapter 45, the prophets pick up on this and again, using that same collection of terms. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feasts, the new moons, and the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. And lastly, Hosea. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Now, there are many other times when two of those three terms are also serving the same function. Sometimes it says just new moons and feasts. Sometimes it's the Sabbaths and uh, new moons. But you get the point. The point is that all of those collection of terms all throughout the Old Testament represented shorthand for all of the ceremonial observances of Judaism. It was the whole collection. It was basically packaged. A whole collection of all the ceremonial observances. So then what is the Apostle Paul saying here? He's saying, well, the religious observances of Judaism are of no relevance to you whatsoever. You are not to be compelled in any way to convert to Judaism as a Christian. Of course, this is a main theme throughout the, uh, the book of Acts, for instance, right? The early Christians were all Jewish. And then you see the Spirit of God start to work in the surrounding areas, right? To Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world where you had even Cornelius, who was a Gentile, becoming, coming to faith. And this kind of raises a, a big controversy in the book of Acts. Wait a second. We have a Gentile who's becoming a Christian and is saved, who has the Spirit of God, but... We haven't, but he, he's not Jewish. And so that became the debate. You have to become Jewish in order to be a Christian. And then in Acts 15, the church gets together and goes, no. No, we're, this is clearly a fulfillment of what Christ came to accomplish in the new covenant is that those are not applicable for Christians. And so here in Colossians, the Apostle Paul is using that collection of terms as representative of all of the Jewish ceremonial systems. And he says, you don't let anybody judge you for those things. A, a parallel for this in another book would be in Galatians in the issue of circumcision. He says, don't, don't go and get circumcised in order to be a Christian. That's imposing, that, that's a, a man thing imposed upon you that's not relevant for you in the new covenant age. Okay, so back to our question. So then, should Christians observe the Jewish ceremonial days as under the Mosaic Covenant as a part of the ceremonial law? And the answer here would be an emphatic no. Emphatic no. And by the way, um, in Colossians 2.16, most English translations have Sabbath in the singular, but in the Greek it's plural. So some, like the New King James actually includes it as plural, Sabbaths, or Sabbath days. So that even more stresses the idea that Paul is drawing from those Old Testament uh, images. But here's the answer. The answer is Christians are not under obligation to the ceremonial laws in the Mosaic Covenant or Judaism. Okay? But Paul is not speaking about the Lord's Day here. 
Now you're like, well, wait, where, where are you getting that from that passage? Well, that's, that's what leads us to our second passage today. So are we to observe the, the seventh day Sabbath, Sabbath as a part of the Jewish system? Paul says, no, absolutely not. Not under the new covenant. But the Ten Commandments, being the eternal moral law of God, and the fourth commandment being included among those, different than all of the other commandments, or all of the other uh, covenant laws connected to the covenant, none of those, uh, those are all of a different category. The ten are unique because it's the ten that were written by the finger of God on the tablets of stone, right? And even when Moses broke them, God said, I'll just rewrite it. Just cut me some new ones and I'll, I'll do it again. He doesn't have Moses chiseling this. This is the finger of God. And the fourth is included in that. So what happens, though, under the new covenant? So let's get to our second question. So here's our second question. Should Christians observe a Sabbath keeping on the Lord's day under the new covenant? And for this, I want us to look at the Hebrews passage. That's my introduction. Now the sermon starts here. Let me give you a background here. On the, the main theme of Hebrews, well, first of all, let me say this about the, the letter to Hebrews. You notice that it doesn't begin like other books of the New Testament. You know, the, the author, servant of God, servant of Jesus Christ, to the who, so and so. It just jumps right into the whole thing. That's because Hebrews is a sermon. As a matter of fact, at the very end, he makes a note. Thank you for listening to this word of, uh, you know, an encouragement. Thank you for listening to my TED talk, you know. It, it, he calls it a word of encouragement, and in Acts, that exact same term is used for the, the sermon that Paul is invited to preach in the synagogues. This is a sermon. And in this sermon, what he's, what he's preaching to his audience is, especially the Jews who are tempted to go back to Judaism from the Christian gathering, because at least Judaism had some measure of protections whereas the Christians didn't, and there was a great deal of persecution that they were experiencing. So the, 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 the Jewish Christians were, were tempted to say, to kind of part from the Christian community and to go and go back to Judaism. And the preacher here in Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't abandon Jesus because Jesus is greater than everything. And in this, he does it in various parts. He says, Jesus is, is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest. Jesus is greater than the temple. Jesus is greater than the sacrifices. He does the whole thing. But right here in Hebrews 3 and 4, he's giving, Jesus is greater than Moses. So uh, if you're still at Hebrews, look at Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Give some background here. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. Right? So notice the connection between comparing Jesus and Moses. For Jesus was, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has, more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Whoa, wait, mighty Moses? Yeah, he's just a servant to testify to the things that would be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as the son. 
And we are his house indeed if we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So catch the theme here. Christ is superior. He's superior to Moses. And now he takes in his word of exhortation here. And just like every good sermon, it has to have a main passage that it's using for the preacher here in Hebrews. He's using Psalm 95 as his text. So some of the quotes you see here are from Psalm 95. And notice the key word rest, entering my rest. Verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, so like a good preacher, he goes back to the scripture passage. He quotes from nine, Psalm 95, which is a reference to the Israel's wilderness wandering after the exodus, their deliverance from Egypt, after the giving of the laws and the covenant. But Israel refused to believe, refused to trust in the Lord. Um, Caleb and Joshua, among others, accepted. And the result was, is that unbelieving generation would not enter the land. They would not enter that rest. They would not cross over into the Jordan and get into the land of promise. Why? Because of their hard heart, because of their unbelief. And so the preacher here is using this as kind of the launching point uh, for his exhortation. Notice verse 12, that he's applying to his hearers. And this is God's word. This is applying to us. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. If it begins with T-O and ends in D-A-Y, that's a good day. And none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then he quotes the passage. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Okay, now again, notice the rest. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter his rest because of unbelief. Okay, that's setting, setting the context here. So now the preacher of Hebrews turns to his audience and to, to his hearers, and he's applying this. He's like just using this example from Israel's history to teach. And then notice there's a shift in emphasis here in the different kind of rest. Rest seems to have been associated with entrance into the land, but he's saying, no, not only was Israel not, uh, the disbelieving Israel not able to enter into the land and they died in the wilderness, as a matter of fact, they don't enter into God's rest. Because some might, you know, some, especially if they're Jewish Christians and he's writing to Jewish Christians who maybe in, are in Israel, they're like, well, we got into the land. Some of us did. He's like, well, you may have gotten into the land, but you didn't get into his rest, God's rest. So notice this in chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, oh, it's open. Let us fear, uh, let us fear lest any of you should have failed, seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, 
The gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, somewhere, like he doesn't know that this is Genesis chapter 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So, so you're saying like, hey, the land is not the rest. The rest is entering into God's rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, that is the rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for... If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, maybe get lost in the weeds here a little bit. He's, he's imploring you, don't, don't be like Israel who had a hardness of heart and disobedient. Don't turn away from the Christian gatherings to go back to Judaism. Because then you would be, you would be imitating your forefathers in that regard. And don't think that just that your fact that you're in the land means that you're a part of the rest because that's a different rest, as verse 8 is saying. For if Joshua had given them that rest, if Joshua ends up leading them in the land, if Joshua had given them the rest, then why in Psalm 95 by David speak of another one later on? Can't be the same rest. Okay, now it's to this, then the preacher says these words, verses 9 10 and 11. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, now I want to show you something here because in most English translations it has Sabbath rest there. And you think, in just reading that, you think, oh, he's talking about the same rest. That term is a different term. We've had multiple uses of rest, either in the, the noun or the verb throughout this passage. And here in verse 9, he's refer he uses a completely different term to say what remains for the people of God. I think I have a chart. Yes. Okay. So the Greek word is katapausis. There's a verb. The main thing I want you to notice is look at how often he's referring to the rest, to the rest, to rest, to rest, to rest, to rest, to rest, to rest, rest. And then in verse nine, he says, there remains a sabbatismos, different word. There remains a sabbatismos for the people of God. And then he resumes to talking about rest. So there's two things I want us to notice here, okay? Two questions I want to ask is what does sabbatismos mean? Why is it different? Why did he use a different term for rest here? What does sabbatismos mean? And then who is the whoever in verse 10? Well, the Greek word sabbatismos, it means Sabbath keeping. Or Sabbath observance. It only occurs in the New Testament once, but outside of the New Testament in the 
Greek literature at the time, it means to observe the Sabbath, to observe, to observe a Sabbath rest, to observe a seventh-day period of rest. There's not much more exposition is needed to that. But whatever it means, it has to mean the different rest that he's talking about in the rest of the passage. Here it's talking about observance, so there remains a Sabbath-keeping for the people of God. Okay, so keep that in mind, and then I want you to notice this. Who is the whoever of verse 10? In the ESV, it says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But let me give you kind of a, um, a, kind of a little more, more um, literal rendering of this. For the one who has entered his own rest has also himself rested from his works as God from his. Okay, that's kind of the literal rendering of that. The one who has entered his own rest has also himself, these are emphatic, rested from his works as God from his own. So who is the whoever? Now, track with me here. I want you to track with me because this is pretty important. Many understand this. Well, the whoever here is referring to the believer. So if you were to plug in, let's put believer then in that verse. It is the believer has entered into his own rest and the believer has rested from the believer's works as God did from his. Okay, that would be the understanding. But there's several objections that, that kind of raises here. Wait, the whoever here is singular and everywhere else when, when the writer of Hebrews is referring to believers, he's using the plural and you see it in the next verse. Let us then. That's one. Whoever in verse 10 has already entered his rest, but it just... The passage in the next verse is encouraging us to strive to enter it. How can the believer be in it and then told to strive to enter into it? And in verse 10, it says, and that one has entered into his own rest. It's an, there's a, it's an emphatic um, uh, pronoun there. But in what sense has the believer entered into his own rest? All through the rest of the passage... Whose rest is the believer invited to enter into? It's God's, not his own. They shall enter into my rest, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 18. My rest, his rest. You get the idea. And then here's the fourth one. In what sense has the individual believer rested from his own works like God did? How is the believer's work similar to, and his accomplishing of those works, parallel to God's? So I'm going to propose to you here that the, the whoever of verse 10 is not the believer. I'm going to propose to you that the whoever of verse 10 is Jesus Christ. So let's plug Jesus Christ into this verse. Jesus Christ has entered into his own rest. Jesus Christ has rested from his works as the Father did from his. Now, now to me, that makes more sense. Makes sense of the singular reference. 
because it's referring to the singular person, Jesus Christ. It makes sense of the parallel works with the fathers because, because Jesus is doing the father's will. He's doing the father's works. And it makes sense with him having already entered into his own rest. He's completed his work, his work of redemption on the cross, and he has been raised from the dead. He has ascended up into the right hands in the heaven, and he is ruling and reigning there. He is seated. That's the argument. So let me give you kind of the argument, and then we're going to go through the rest of Hebrews here. How much time do I have? Let me give you his argument. Israel of old, unbelieving Israel, did not enter into their rest, katapausis. Some entered into the land, but not into God's rest. But Jesus Christ has entered into his rest, katapausis. He's completed his works just as the Father did. And here's the tour through Hebrews. And if you want to turn with me, See your, see your eyes on the page here. Go back to the beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3. When it speaks of Jesus as being the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, after making purification for sins, he, what? Sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 13 of chapter 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Chapter 2, verse 9, where God the Father has crowned Jesus with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He's been crowned. He's seated in heaven. Notice chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. Notice he's got passed through the heavens. Verse 16. We then, therefore, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because that's where he is, seated on his throne. Chapter 6, verse 19, we have in Christ a sure and steady anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into behind the holy place, the, holy, the curtain, where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Where is that place? It sounds like the temple imagery. Yes, it's the temple, but not the earthly one. It's the heavenly one, which is what it says in chapter 7. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant, verse 22, verse 24. And he is a, holds that priesthood permanently. And then notice 25 of chapter 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and what? Did I go too fast for you? Verse 26, exalted above the heavens. I, I could say you get the point, but I, I want to keep going through these. Verse, chap, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne and the majesty on high. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Verse 24. For Christ has entered same verb, by the way, as the entering that's used in the earlier passage. 
He has entered not into the holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Again, he's telling them, don't abandon, don't abandon the Christian gathering on the Lord's day to go back to Judaism. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession. You guys had made a confession in Christ. Hold fast to that confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've heard when people ask the question, so why, where in the Bible does it tell us we should, we should go and gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day? And often they'll quote that verse, Hebrews 10, 25. Well, don't neglect meeting together. But do you realize that it's at the long end that's chapters long arguing that Jesus is, the, is supreme. He has made a day. He has entered into his rest and he is ruling and reigning in heaven above. So there's this long argument that begins in chapter 3 that Israel of old did not enter into their rest. They didn't enter the land. Some entered in the land, but that's not God's rest. And so there still is a rest that remains for us to obtain. But in the meantime, there is a sabbatismos for the people of God. That's the strong call to persevere. Therefore, let us strive to enter. And part of striving to enter is gathering together on the Lord's day. Christ is resting now. We don't. We have, in a sense, we have a rest with Christ because we're united with him. But our final rest, we will receive one day. But in the meantime, he has given us his day for rest and worship. Or I'll put it this way. Jesus Christ has entered his rest, completed his work of redemption, just as God the Father rested from the work of creation until we come into the presence of our Lord Jesus and finally enter his rest. He has given us his day, the Lord's day, to gather and worship and rest in him. So is there, the question was, is, is, is there a, a Sabbath keeping for Christians? Yeah, there is a Sabbath keeping, but it's on the Lord's day. Until we join Jesus in his rest, in his katapausis, we have a sabbatismos. We have a Sabbath keeping on the Lord's day. Each weekly Lord's day gathering is a day to not only to worship and to rest. Each weekly Lord's Day gathering, we gather to worship and celebrate and memorialize the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Each Lord's Day, we gather together to 
celebrate and memorialize and rest in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, from his, his ascension into the heavens and his exaltation. When we gather together on the Lord's day, he is present with us by his spirit, but he is seated on his throne, even now ruling and reigning. And why is he seated? He's not standing. He's seated because his work is complete. He's rested. He's accomplished a rest, a redemption for us. And so each Lord's day, when we gather, we're, we're doing it in celebration of his work and anticipation of the final rest that we will receive by his grace. Christ completing his, uh, our works for us and then sitting at the right hand of the Father. So each Lord's Day is a preview of the rest that we will receive by grace in Christ completing his works for us. Amen? Amen. And so each Lord's Day, we gather to sing, to worship, to hear God's word, to hear Christ preached from God's word. And we also take the meal that Jesus has given us to remind us of that work of redemption, the meal of the new covenant. And so together, brothers and sisters, invite you to come stand together and I will pray and then invite you to come to the Lord's table. This is for believers in Jesus Christ. If that is not you, there's no judgment, no embarrassment. Feel free to stay at your seat. But if that is you, we gather together to take this meal in remembrance of the work of Christ. We take this meal as the gospel is preached to us through it. We take this meal and just as the bread nourishes our bodies and the fruit of the vine would refresh our souls, the, the truth of uh, the gospel that these represent nourishes, our, nourishes us spiritually and refreshes us spiritually in Christ. And so with that in mind, let's take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you have fed us by your word, and now, Lord, you feed us with your supper, the supper of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fruit of the earth and the fruit of the vine, but we thank you even more for what what is conveyed here, and that is your grace given to us through Jesus Christ. And so we acknowledge you and give thanks to you. We come to this table with joy, the joy of our salvation that is accomplished by Christ. And so we give you thanks for this time together as your people. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.